Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the show. My name is Scott Wiley, and you're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast. And I must apologize if I sound different, but uh, this might be the new normal for a while, although, of course, I will be working on it. But I have actually moved house. So, as you may have noticed if you're a regular listener, this is the first episode that has been uploaded for a few weeks. There is a lot that has gone on outside of the show that I will not be going into but suffice to say, there's been a lot of change. And so the show originally went on a bit of a hiatus intentionally, and then it kind of got carried on unintentionally because of other stuff happening around me outside of my control, and then I moved. So this is the new place that I will be recording from. Unfortunately, it is exceptionally hot, so I have the windows open and sound seems to come in from outside real well. So if you hear cars in the background... I apologize, I will do my best to take them out, so you might not even notice it, which is kind of what I'm hoping for. If it's your first time here, then I'm sorry, that's a really weird intro, but welcome to the show. We talk about action films from every decade, every era, from every corner of the globe, and this is a very special one because this is our 50th episode. It should have come out weeks ago, and unfortunately it didn't, but it's here now, and that's the important thing. We also have a very special guest, Ewan Patterson who you may know from such websites as What Culture and Screen Rant, and of course the podcast We Love Dad Movies, as well as some of the essays that he writes himself, but he's also been a host, like I said, on What Culture on the, on the YouTube channel for many, many years. You can often find him talking about comic books and movies and superhero stuff. So I was very excited that he had his own podcast, and you'll, you'll kind of hear us say this all again, but... The reason why I'm kind of prefacing it with another intro is basically because this episode was literally recorded the week the trailer for John Wick 4 came out. And John Wick 4 is out now on home release. And I saw it in the cinema opening night. And I loved it, just for those wondering. But this episode was always going to be uh, one that had to wait for a minute because I recorded it before we were actually at episode 50. And had my plan not been wrecked by other stuff, it would have been fine. But unfortunately, life happened. So this episode is even older now. But thank you to Ewan for coming on. And thank you for being patient and waiting for this episode to come out. I will definitely have Ewan back. And he will not have to wait so long for his episode to come out. Also, I just want to say briefly that there's a lot of names that I know. Because, you know, I recorded this a while ago. And when I edited it, I noticed that... I was having a bad day with words. Um, sometimes it's not very noticeable, and other times it's very noticeable, and I've, I've edited around it, but I pronounced several names wrong. So I'm just warning you now, you don't need to tell me, I already know. So I'm going to hand you over to us now so that you can get straight into the conversation, and I'm glad to be back, so let's keep the good times rolling. See you in a bit, guys.
Alright ladies and gentlemen, we're here, we're back in the live room, and today we're joined by a very special guest. Someone that, if you'd asked me when this show started, Hey, who would you like to have on guest on your show? And someone said, How about one of those fine chaps that used to be on YouTube? I'd be like, but I was one of those fine chaps that used to be on YouTube. YouTube sucks! Oh, you mean one of the successful people? Yeah, I'll, I'll have one of them. We do have one of those people today! Hello, you and Patterson! How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good, Scott. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing It's a very good. flattering intro. <laughs> I'm being laughed at by Ewan because I'm talking to myself to set up my own joke for an intro. It's uh, You get used to it. It's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Before we go any further, because I'll forget otherwise, would you like to tell people what you are currently doing now rather than what they might know you for? Because that's kind of how we we started talking, basically. Yeah, so um, most people will probably... I'm going to sound like Troy McClaw when I say this now. Uh, most people <laughs> will remember me from when I was at what culture. Um, so I was a uh, presenter slash editor slash writer slash all-around handyman for what culture from 2017 through to 2021. I was involved with the comics channel, the main channel, Star Wars channel, uh, the gaming channel. And then a little bit of the Trek channel, although my Trek knowledge is really just the movies and a few episodes of the original series. So that was about the extent of my influence on there. I left What Culture in 2021 um, to join Screen Run as a gaming editor, um, which I was doing up until um, last month, where I'm currently now on a bit of a sabbatical. And I'm going to be in stepping into a new role in the movie section of the website, focusing on classic films, which... Over the course of the pandemic and kind of leaving what culture and stepping away and doing a different thing, I kind of really realized was like my big thing. Um, so in 2021, I also started a podcast called the Wheel of Dad Movies podcast, which was something that I wanted to get off the ground um, for a while because like my dad was the single biggest like influence on my, my cinematic tastes growing up. Um, we spent so many like hours just like late night on a Friday just browsing like film four or like any of the sky movie channels and then ended up watching the nine o'clock showing and then drifting off into the eleven thirty five showing and all of a sudden it's like two AM and you're like, why are we why are we so far into the Godfather part two? We've seen this movie five times, but it's on so we're gonna watch it anyway. Um and yeah, so my dad sadly passed away in twenty twenty one um at the age of fifty five. It was a huge, huge shock. Um which meant that I couldn't do the podcast with him, which was my original intention. So what I did was I kind of stepped away for a while and started doing it with my partner, Xander. Uh, and then occasionally I've like brought in different guests, brought on an old friend of mine called Dan Grima. We've been doing different kind of, basically just focusing on dad movie cinema, um, which is my absolute favorite nebulous filmic genre. Um, this is like the foundations of like all my interests, like Westerns, um, old school action movies, which, you know, I think the action addicts audience will <laughs> definitely appreciate. Um, and yeah, it's just been a real pleasure to be able to do that podcast because it's a way for me to kind of capture the same excitement and energy that I get from talking about movies. And when you're doing content full time, it's difficult to always convey that aspect of your personality. You don't always get to dive into the things that you really want to talk about. Um, and now I have that space to do that, um, which has been great. I've also got a little Patreon where I've been writing the occasional essay, although admittedly not nearly enough. But when I have gotten a chance to, that's been a great outlet as well. So yeah, Wheel of Dad movies, it's kind of been a really fun thing to 
get going over the last year as as a podcast novice as well by the way like i'm still very <laughs> very bare bones on it but i've been enjoying it it's been really fun and getting to know this podcasting corner of like film twitter has been great as well which again i have to thank dan for that as well he's he's really kind of been in the action twitter um kind of planes as it were and uh, introduced me to your podcast he introduced me to action for everyone as well and um it's been nice just getting to operate in that that nice little positive sphere um because you know content creation as i'm sure you're aware can be it can be pretty it can be pretty sad at times so it's nice to have that bit of positivity and and an excitement back um and seeing some of the response to the podcast has been nice as well because at the end of the day it is just a for me thing um but if people enjoy it that's a nice little bonus too yeah uh there's there's several things i need to say back to that so first of all for those listening spoiler alert dan might be a future guest on this show as well so look forward to that but also, yeah, Action for Everybody is a fantastic group of people. I'm kind of happy that you found the group that you found, whether it was through Dan's guidance or whatever, because you're right. It is something that I talk about a lot, which is that even in our circle, there's still a lot of negativity that, that, that seeps through. You know, the film we're going to be talking about today recently had a trailer for its next installment, and one of the characters people are not necessarily vibing with uh, for stupid reasons. And we all are. We're all excited and trying to not necessarily combat that because people can think what they think, like what they like. I've said this from day one. But if people are excited about something, just let them be excited. And if you're not, that's cool. Like, I don't have a problem if people have issues with stuff. But if if we are, you don't have to come in to our mentions to tell us why we're wrong, you know? <laughs> so I always try not to do that. and I, and. I've listened to eight episodes of the We Love Dad Movies podcast, and there are a lot of podcast channels that follow this show, and I have to say this next bit very diplomatically. I tend to try and listen to at least one episode of all of them, and uh, some of them have been on the show as well, and I can genuinely say that the first episode of We Love Dad Movies, I then queued up about three more with the expectation to come back to them and ended up listening to them all pretty much in one go. And uh, that's, to me, it's the best endorsement I can give. It's one of the few shows that I genuinely, when one finishes, I want to listen to the next one. And it helps that, A, I love listening to the interactions between you and your partner, but also you bring on other people kind of like what I do. And I got to say, the last one I listened to, because I've listened to them out of order, don't don't, don't think, oh, that's about where you are. No, no, I've gone all over the shop. Um, the, the last one I listened to was Aliens with Ash. And I follow Ash as well. And listening to you two talk about aliens was such a... Some people tell me that I do this on my show and I don't think I do. It's the first time I've listened to two people talk about a film that I think I know to death. And I go, I've not thought about that before. That's a good point, point, Hewan. And then Ash will say something. Shit. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And I'm like, damn it, I hope you bring Ash back. I want to hear more from the from these two talking. And... I'm like, oh, is this what it's like to listen to my show? I think I get it now. <laughs> so I love your show. <laughs> and I also think it has very oh, similar... thank you so much. It, it has very similar origins to my show as well. And, you know, my... I don't ever quite know how to say this, but my condolences to because of your father, because as listeners know, my grandfather was basically the same influence that your father was. And my dad is as well. And he still is. But... It was always my hope that my granddad could be on this show because honestly, he's 
forgotten more about action movies than most people will ever know. And sadly, in an almost very scary mirroring of you, he literally passed away as this show was getting its first episode recorded. So I'm right there with you. It, it sucks. But at the end of the day, these are the people that inspired us to do what we're doing now. And I like the fact that we're doing it for them is the best way I can put it. Yeah, no, totally. I'm very sorry to hear that. But you're right. Like, it's a case of you you get to carry their memory with you, I think. Um, and, like, obviously, these people in our lives, they're way more than just movies. You know, they, they've, they've raised us to be the people that we are. But this is just, like, one facet of what made... Of what made my dad great and what made your granddad great as well. And um, it's just tapping into that, it makes me feel... like Whenever I fire up, like, a movie that we loved... Uh, I really enjoyed. It's like I'm watching it with him. Like there was a there was an interesting article I read last year um, regarding like grief and talking about how you should you shouldn't watch stuff that you associate with someone's passing immediately after they've gone because you'll come to associate negative emotions with those things. But you know I can't speak for everyone, but I would personally disagree with that. Like movies have been a really solid outlet for me to you know, keep my dad with me in spirit. Um, and kind of like, I, I just know that if there's like, we just did an episode on Tango and Cash this week, which is one of my mom and my dad's favorite movies to watch together. And I'm just cackling the entire time. I'm just like, I know he's having, I know he's having a laugh at this as well, because it is just like, you know, it, it it's ultimately a very positive thing for me. Um, and it's become a great outlet and both a, a great, like emotional outlet, but also a great, you know, creative outlet. Um, and, yeah, that's it means a lot to say that you you binged it that much because I was quite insecure about the pod when it first started. I was like, I don't know how many people are gonna like, you know, um carry over from from the what culture audience, maybe pay attention to those, especially given most of my background's been in superheroes and comics. Um, but it's nice that there has been a little bit of attention and yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's my pleasure. I I genuinely you know, it's a part of my watch list. The only ones I haven't watched are ones where I I need to rewatch the film first because I, like I started listening to Cobra and realized I don't remember this film well enough. I need to rewatch it before I listen to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's one of those things where I think the films you've picked are ones that everybody can pretty much agree they enjoyed or they belong to a certain time period. So it just works. And I mean, it's nice in some ways because... Your show has a clear laser focus, like these are dad movies for the most part. You know, there's some exceptions like you did Prey. And my show, it's like I load a shotgun, fire it and go in every direction, which people like. <laughs> but it does kind of make it difficult sometimes to stay focused. Like, oh, there's so much things I want to cover and do. Whereas yours, it's like, oh, those are all amazing films that I've seen. Yeah, I can listen to all of these. <laughs> but... Speaking of, and uh, this is the weirdest segue I've ever done. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of amazing things. <laughs> well, well, that was probably the happier one. I was actually going to say, speaking of dealing with grief. <laughs> oh. The film in question that we're talking about today, as you will have already seen and heard, is John Wick. A film that I have seen many, 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 many times, and I never get bored of rewatching, and I always notice something or pick up on something new that I find interesting whenever I rewatch it. I also seem to somehow forget that Willem Dafoe is in it because I think everybody is, you know, so chapter two and chapter three doesn't have Willem Dafoe in it that you almost kind of forget he's in the first one. So I was like, oh, yeah, he's in it. Yeah, no, totally. 
I had the I had the exact same realization yesterday when I was watching it. I was like, oh my god, wait, Willem Dafoe's in this, and he's great in it. I completely forgot. <laughs> so I, I'm just gonna say right off the bat, the first thought I had because I rewatched this with Jade, and we both sort of said, you know, I understand why and it works for the story, but it does make me really sad that Willem Dafoe doesn't make it out of this film because given what he would do a few years later in No Way Home and how he proved that even at his age, he's like, no, I'm doing all the action scenes. I'm doing all of the stunts. And it's like, I'm not doing the film if you don't let me. Ah, oh, what he could have done if 8711 had given him some fight scenes. I, I'm like really salty now that we haven't been given that. Yeah. But yeah, no, I totally agree. I kind of, um, the one thing that I really wish we had in that original movie is because they kind of, they set up, Defoe's character is like a bit of a mentor to Wick. Well, not set him up, but like, you know, implied through, you know, backstory that that he kind of was with John and taught John um, and is kind of an ally. Um, and I think the reason they don't go into it into as much detail as I would have liked to is because they want to set up the whole will he or won't he go after John when the contract goes out on his head. But yeah, I totally agree. I, I wish he was around for more of these because... Uh, I just enjoy like I I'm a big sucker for for films where there's like the the old grizzled veteran um who's like helping out his like protege um and we get lots of good kind of back and forth between them in this one um and yeah no I I get so upset when he does kick the bucket because it's I mean he goes out like a champ it has to be said he goes out you know guns blazing um but it is a remarkably sad and cruel moment in the film. And I just wish that I wish he'd made it through. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you say, un un annoyingly, the film does kind of need his, his death to happen narratively. But like you say, the fact that he's very, very beaten and bloody. And then all of a sudden it's like, he's like, yeah, no, I've had enough of this now. And then manages to kill like half the guards in the room before he gets uh, shot himself. And you're just like, if you'd done that before they'd kick the shit out of you, you probably wouldn't, it would have been fine. <laughs> like, clearly you had the skills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> no, no, just, 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 we're jumping ahead already and we have barely even started. So let's rewind a bit. Um, so my first question for you is, when did you watch this film? And what, do you remember your reactions when you first did? Because I know... Not everybody, especially in the UK, which is something I didn't mention earlier. It's nice to have more UK representation on the podcast because A, we're in the same time zone, which is nice. And B, we kind of have similar experiences seeing films and what it was like growing up. Whereas, you know, a lot of my American guests, as amazing as they are, had totally different upbringings when it comes to these sorts of things. So what was it like for you trying to see John Wick? So I didn't actually catch it in the cinemas, shockingly, um, which is wild to me because it was one that I very much wanted to. And it's because this is actually, so my dad, I tried to convince him to go watch it with me and he couldn't buy into the premise of this hitman going after all these guys because they killed his dog. And I was like trying to explain it to him. Like, no, it's more, it's more, it's more than just the dog. It's more than just the dog. So I never got around to watching it in the cinemas and I ended up catching it on streaming, I think um, later in the year. Um, and I just, I fell in love. It's, it's so, it's so unique as an action movie. You know, there's a reason why so many films post Wick have leaned into its kind of style and aesthetic. Um, and that's partially because, you know, Stileski and Leitch, they, they've gone on to have, you know, produce and direct different efforts elsewhere. Um, but yeah, watching it for the first time, I was just blown away. I was very, very happy to see Keanu getting another win after kind of a few years in the wilderness, I want to say. 
Um, and I just enjoyed kind of going into that, being floored by the first opening 10 minutes, which is like the up of action movies, and then it peeling out into this intricately layered, law-driven, you know, world that felt so realized and authentic and ultimately fun as well. Um, and yeah, kind of just being blown away by the choreography and, and the action sequences. The gunfu on display here is truly next level. And one thing that stuck out to me as well when I first watched it was the soundtrack. Um, I'm going to be going to show my ass here. Is it Trent Reznor who did this? What, the soundtrack? Or is it someone else? Yeah, yeah. I'll be honest, no idea. Um, I was yeah, actually yeah. going to mention the soundtrack because, again, it's one of those things that really stood out to me on the rewatch was how different this film sounds to its sequels and the fact that there is a lot of... Uh, I don't want to call it licensed music, but there is a lot of actual like vocals. Whereas I feel like in the second film, especially, uh, what it it's more generic action movie music without being mean to it because it's all really good. But it it really stuck out to me this time of just how much this one feels like a different product to what we would then get with the sequels. Yeah, totally. So it was Tyler Bates. That's the name I was looking for. Who who did the music? It was him and Joel Joel J Richard. Um, but I would agree the the What's, that's one thing that stood out for me yesterday as well, going back to it, was how... Because I've spent so many times like listening to the John Wick kind of soundtrack um, just to hear the nightclub anthems because they're so they're so good. They're so stylish. Yep. And they really... Like, the nightclub scene, the red circle sequence is the movie's, you know, shining moment. Um, and I do think, you know, that's obviously because the choreography, the lighting, everything is great. But... um. The, the music does a great deal of setting up for it. Like you have that kind of wire dance number at the beginning where they're in the, the pool area. Yeah. And then that explodes into that kind of, you know, the the, the more like, um, I don't know the right genre, but it explodes into a more like fist pumping dance movie kind of anthem uh, as John hits yeah, the dance it, floor. And it sounds like something you'd hear if you went into a nightclub and someone yelled, drop the bass and was listening to dubstep. <laughs> Yeah, like the, the the anthem from Blade, like with all the night, the vampires in the nightclub. That's the kind of music it shifts into. Yeah, um, and it just works great. And yeah, like the the music is it's brilliant. Like I love that, and that the whole um the we're killing strangers bit as well. I like how that comes through. That is just a great bit. The, the sound of this movie really kind of jumped out at me on the rewatch yesterday. I'd have to agree. Um, definitely a high point. Well, it's funny too because. It wasn't just the soundtrack that stood out to me as not better, but different to what we would later get. The other thing is, as you say, those first 10 minutes, the up of action movies. Funnily enough, that's exactly what Jade said. And I had kind of forgotten how good that opening sequence is because because of the fact that this film was kind of a revolution, regardless of whether or not people want to admit it, it did change action movies. At the time, before John Wick, we were stuck in a world of Taken 3s, where your action stars needed 67 jump cuts to go over a fence. And I'm not exaggerating, people listening. Go and watch that film again. But it felt like that's where action movies were sticking to because it was easier to make. And then John Wick came along and went, here's a radical idea. How about we actually train people and get people that can do this stuff and we just film them? And... It took off in a big way because audiences went, oh yeah, I like seeing what's happening on screen. That's a good idea in my visual medium. 
But because that became the sort of talking point, and then I'd argue the focal point of its sequels, I think the moments in between the action in the first film get overshadowed and forgotten. And that whole first 10 minutes of him dealing with his wife, her getting sick, her passing, the fact that it opens technically at the end of the film, I, I just think everyone forgets that. And, you know, people, like you said, you know, your dad couldn't couldn't buy the idea that he would do this because someone killed a dog. Well, A, as you said, it's not just about the fact someone killed a dog, but also... I know so many people that were ready to, like, burn people's houses down because the dog died. It's like, I don't give a shit that the woman died, but they killed a puppy. They must be taken to the realms of Hellraiser. You know, it's like, it's the one of the most effective ways the thing I've ever seen an audience immediately snap to, yep, I want him to kill them and I want it to be painful because cruelty to animals is something that we don't like. You know, most of us do not like Seager and that whole sequence is just devastating and the sound design which goes right alongside the fantastic music that we've already said again you know the roar of the engines the pumping of the music the fact that everything in that opening sequence like the rain in the funeral scene where Marcus and John are talking is so ridiculously loud but again sadly having been to funerals in the pouring rain that is kind of what it feels like. That is the realities. And then, you know, the metal baseball bat cracking him on the back of the head and then unfortunately taking out the puppy. All of that just sets up this really visceral experience of the audience to be in a position to go, yeah, I don't like these guys. <laughs> I think that doesn't get enough credit. And I also think that something that we will talk about, because you've already sort of said this before we started recording, is that momentum... I think people have forgotten it for the sequels when some people say, oh, it's just one long action sequence in John Wick 3's case. I see that complaint leveled against it a lot. But I think they forget that these films all take place within like a couple days of each other. Like It's the momentum of this beginning bit of the film that is supposed to carry you through up until chapter 3 at least, because it looks like chapter 4 has actually had some time. But that opening segment is everything that this series is about. And I'm sorry, Ewan, because I'm talking for a long time. I'm going to let you chime in in a second. <laughs> no apologies. <laughs> but there is just one other aspect that I need to address, because otherwise I'll forget. And it and it really, it hadn't hit me until I watched it this time. And I don't know why. But there is a scene, and it, and it stuck in my head in this rewatch, and it's never done so before. But you know when he goes into the hotel, and it's after... A couple of action sequences is after they've tried to kill him at his house and he's, you know, he's gone back into John Wick mode and it all calms down and he's trying to psych himself up to go to the Red Circle District or the Red Light District, whatever it's called. <laughs> he watches a video of his wife and it's the same video that we see multiple times throughout the film. And when he does so, I noticed a lot of subtle acting from Keanu Reeves that either I just didn't see the first time because I just wasn't looking for it. Or I've just been through so much crap since then that now I'm a lot more aware of it. But I picked up so much more about his subtle acting in the uncomfortableness, the way he was sort of making these emotional attachments and the way he was just moving and his, you know, his, his anxiety. And it suddenly hit me. The reason why John Wick is constantly killing in these films is not because he's seeking revenge or vengeance or making people pay. It's because, as you gave me a great opening for at the beginning, 
the thing that he used to do when he felt good before he got with his wife was kill people. Now, the dog was supposed to be the thing that would stop him from going back down that dark path, but obviously the dog was taken away and his wife is gone, there's nobody there for him. So he is pissed off and angry and he's letting out his rage, which we'll get to later, by what he does in the film. But that's not actually the reason why he's doing it, I don't think. I think he's stuck, unable to process, and the way he's processing it is by going back to what he knows, which is kicking people's ass and putting bullets through their brains, because that keeps him attached to the memory of his wife. It's how his brain has equated the two so that he can deal with it, just like, say, for example, when a soldier comes back after their deployment, they might be back physically, but their brain is still overseas, wherever it was where they suffered a horrific event. They can't always process it, and they still see things of well, and mix the reality of what they're actually seeing and what's actually happening over there with various different diagnoses, depending on what they've had. I'm not even going to try and pretend to equate them. But I feel like that's a similar thing of what's happening to John. He can't separate what's happened now with what his old life is because the two have come together right at a point where he's nothing but an emotional ball of stress, anxiety, depression and sadness and now they're forever interlinked. As long as he's killing people, his wife's alive in his head. So why would he stop? No, that's a really interesting read because um, I, I definitely I definitely see that. Like it's um, the, the one thing that hit me with the opening this time and this again, this is this is my first this is my first rewatch since like having having suffered a great loss you know in my life so i picked up on like that that kind of opening you know it it hits harder you notice the absence of everything you know the absence of someone's presence the presence of what they were in the environment um and you know he they call john wick the baba yaga you know the boogeyman um because he's meant to be you know like a fairy tale monster and it fits in with the motif of him coming to take you know the child <laughs> in this movie and take revenge on him for misbehaving um but he's so ghost-like in this um and it definitely feels a case of one thing that i felt was really pronounced this time on the rewatch uh, obviously having seen two and three is the the amount of people telling him you know you can't as soon as you stick your pinky back in you know this this life's gonna swallow you and consume you again and you know, in time, you're going to forget what you're even doing at this point. I do think it's because he's basically on autopilot. You know, he's he is so focused on getting revenge. And, you know, I think anyone in a similar position would probably be equally as, you know, single single minded about this situation. Um, but sometimes I feel when he's looking at that video, it even though it's him psyching himself up and reminding him of what of why he's doing this and why he just can't go back to another life. He can't just get another dog and just get another car and and. and and go back to what was his. Um, it's it's a case of like he, I think Helen would have wanted him to try again and to leave everything behind because she knows how much he fought to get away from it. Um, and I feel like sometimes when he's looking at that video, even though it is like a motivating factor, I do wonder if there's a sense of anguish and potential anxiety that he's disappointing her and being like, well, yeah, I'm doing this. But this wasn't, you know, I, I left this life behind for you. It's interesting. There's so many different ways to kind of approach it. Um, and, you know, obviously we all want to see John get his victory. But at the same time, you know, the movie does kind of really lean into the idea of revenge being a never ending shit tip. You know, he, once you peel back one layer and you resolve one arc, 
then he loses his mentor and then he's got to go back and, and, and exact more revenge. And that feeds into a cycle that, you know, eventually culminates in what we get in, in chapters two and chapter three. Um, and I thought that this movie, you know, I think people may talk about how, like, you know, you mentioned earlier on that, that John Wick chapter three has a criticism leveled against it, that it's one big long action sequence. But going back and rewatching this today, I was kind of, well, yesterday, sorry, I was kind of not, not surprised, but I was pleased at seeing how much thematic groundwork is laid for, you know, the discussions that the two sequels have about the idea of like, well, why is he even doing this anymore? He's so consumed and, and lost in this world again. You know, how do you how do you get back out once you peel back that layer? Yeah, no, it's 100% right. I mean, he is trying to fill a void. And, you know, he even says in in one of the scenes in this film that, you know, the dog was an opportunity to grieve on alone, which is massively important, in my opinion. But also, um, at this before we started recording, you said to me that you actually like this one, or you did anyway, like this one the least. Um, not that you don't like it, obviously they're all amazing, but your favorite is actually chapter three. And I personally really enjoy all three of them very differently. Uh, but I know that for a lot of people, like a couple, like my friends especially, are a prime example. This is their favorite one, and it's not hard to see why. On a rewatch, it's because, as you just said, all of the thematic relevance, all of the gravity and the reasoning is in number one. All of the stuff people can identify with: losing a loved one, losing a pet, wanting to seek vengeance, and as you said, there's the mentor figure. There is a lot of actual setup of the world without getting it bogged down in the details which is the one complaint i genuinely do agree with with both the sequels is they built this fantastical world where assassins walk among us where there are hotel chains specifically set up for them to inhabit and not have to worry about retaliation but they don't really explain how it works it's just we have coins things happen we know who to talk to in the sequels they try to explain it. They try to flesh it out. They try to give it rhyme and reason. They introduce the partners becomes the high table, for example, that Winston re references in this film. And I think people get bogged down by all that extra weight that the chapters try and give the story. Whereas in this one, it's just we buy the world because it's just it, it exists. There's no attempt to rationalize or reason it. It's just this is an interesting world with a lot of mystery. John Wick's a good killer, and he's going to kill the people we don't like. I'm on board, you know. Yeah, totally. I, I can totally see that. Um, and I, I do have to say, I really enjoy one thing that I forgot was really cool about the original John Wick. Going back and watching it yesterday, um, is the cleaners. I feel like one of the co coolest scenes in this movie isn't action oriented in any way whatsoever. It's after the first shootout, and John makes a dinner reservation, um, <laughs> which is code for get me Winston Wolf and clean up my house please um and they have that one shot of the guy spraying house cleaner on like um on like a window or a mirror and then wiping it down I don't know why that shot has always stood out to me as being like oh man he's cleaning that's badass <laughs> yeah no you're a hundred percent right I mean the the world of these assassins is so terrifyingly well organized and clean that instead of going how 
how could you have a massive shootout in a big house or in the middle of a street and no one see a thing? You instead get the answer of, well, this particular set of very, very skilled killers live in a world where all of that has been thought of. And as long as you can afford it, the solution will literally drive up to you and solve the problem for you. I mean, the cleaners, in my opinion, like you say, are one of the best parts of the film. I mean, the efficiency with which they get rid of all of those bodies and leave his house spotless. But on top of that, before the cleaners show up, you get Jimmy the cop, who quite clearly knows exactly who and what John Wick does and uh, is either being paid or is just smart enough to go, cool, I'll uh, I'll leave you to it then. <laughs> It's because John's everyone's best friend and former colleague. Everyone, that's one thing I really enjoyed watching this again, is that everyone, everyone, John Wick is everyone's best friend, which, you know, it emphasizes the fuck up of, um, of the son of Alfie Allen's character even more, because it's like, why would you go and piss off, like, <laughs> the nicest man in the hitman world, you know? <laughs> because everyone loves John. Everyone's, you know, um, happy to see him again but also like kind of like oh we thought you got out um but yeah i enjoy i enjoy all those interactions like especially in the bar when they go to um when he's in the continental bar for the first time and there's the um he meets winston again and then there's also the um the bartender who he was friends with yeah um it's just nice everyone's friends everyone's friends with them and there's also is it is it henry or harry who um, harry yeah helps harry who helps him detain miss perkins um it's just great. I, that, the one thing that I, I come back to with this movie is how fully realized everything is. And I do think you're right. Like, even though I personally enjoy these films getting more bonkers with the lore and diving in like super deep with it, um, there is a lot to be said about how how efficiently it layers the world building in in the first one. Um, because it's it's super compelling and it provides a great springboard to then obviously do all the the cool shit in in two and in Parabellum. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it it also helps that when you think about it, considering this was made by eighty seven eleven, and you know you've got the two not really first time directors, but they weren't exactly proven material as far as Hollywood was concerned. I mean, they basically made this film themselves. But that considered, they got some fantastic actors involved in this, like. I think it goes to show just how well respected and liked they are slash were because obviously they worked with Keanu on the Matrix films. So getting him back was probably easier for them than other people. But some of the other names in this, like we've already mentioned Willem Dafoe, but Winston's played by Ian McShane. His wife is Bridget uh, Moynihan. You had like John Leguizamo and Dean Winters in like minor roles. You've got Lance Reddick and, you know, even the bartender who you just mentioned, Addy, who I wish was in more of these films because she's such a good little like character moment for John to have a more human connection with. But Bridget Regan, who I knew already from the Legend of the Seeker television series, and she kicks ass practically every episode. So when Adrienne Palicki, who plays Perkins, had shown up and then literally the next scene introduced Addy, I was literally, I remember the first time watching it going, there's no way that they would cast these two and they're not both going to have fight sequences. Because I think at the time, uh, Adrian was uh, was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I was I was really disappointed that only one of those turned out to be true. I thought, ah, 
you've cast two badass ladies. I was really looking forward to both of them getting to show off in a in a mainstream film. But I every time I rewatch this first one, I'm always surprised at who shows up, and my brain goes, "Oh yeah," because it's like um the guy that plays Victor Toby Leonard Moore. I'm pretty sure he's in Daredevil, and obviously the guy that plays the head of the Russian security. Kirill is Daniel Bernhardt, who also worked on The Matrix, has dozens of films to his name, and seems to be having a bit of a resurgence in popularity, but I knew him all the way back in the 90s from the Mortal Kombat Conquest TV show, and yeah, I mean, it, it's just such a collection of random people that, honestly, for a, a quote-unquote first-time production, is kind of an achievement in and of itself, in my opinion. Yeah, and it does it does intimate just how strong the legacy of the first Matrix is, and other sequels as well. I'll I'll go and bat for them too. Um, but the fact that they were able to command that kind of attention, you know, because the Matrix did change the game, and you know, like every every single movie in the years afterwards was trying to have its own Matrix moment or parody. Mm. And while John Wick didn't quite get any of that that level of um, that same kind of cultural attention um it also like we mentioned it did it did it did shift the genre again um and i think it's great that even though kind of stunt coordinators stunt doubles don't really get the recognition they deserve publicly and you know in in the, in the trades and the press and in the award ceremonies within the industry itself it's nice that for john wick you know keanu reeves who we all know is a great guy kind of lent you know was like i'm gonna do this and then you know it, everyone kind of gravitating towards them i think defoe himself specifically cited their work on on the matrix as a reason for wanting to get involved and obviously for working with with reeves too so yeah no it's it's great and it's nice that you know the matrix leaves all these great different legacies um and and john wick i think you would put within that um and it's yeah no it's just it's 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 one of those i go back to it and i can't believe that the movie is nine years old now um or about to turn nine years old I know, and just thinking about how how much has changed since then, um, and seeing what you know Stileski and and David Leitch have done since, um, it's just it's just incredible to think that this kind of you know mid budget actioner, starring at the time, um, a Keanu Reeves that hadn't really you know, kind of stalled in the late two thousands. It's just great to see where it's all come from since then. It's a nice little happy story. Yeah, which is which isn't always the case in Hollywood. I mean, it is funny too because although John Wick is definitely what kind of catapulted Keanu back into mainstream stardom and allowed him to basically, you know, do what he wants for a bit, the two films that he did before then, it's kind of funny how quickly things can change because in the same year you had Man of Tai Chi and Forty Seven Ronin, literally the year before John Wick. Now. 47 Ronin was pretty much panned, and I'm pretty confident it bombed at the box office, but I wouldn't, like, don't quote me on that. But I know it didn't do as well as they wanted. And I remember seeing so many people basically writing off Keanu Reeves saying, yeah, he's a relic of the past, his star power's faded, blah, blah, blah. Man of Tai Chi, on the other hand, was actually a film that Keanu directed, and he plays the uh, antagonist rather than the protagonist. That is the role of Tiger Chen. And... I actually think that's a pretty decent film, especially for the audience of this show. I would be surprised if they hadn't seen it. But the fact that, from my point of view, he did Man of Tai Chi, which was kind of his reintroduction into 
martial arts typey stuff. I wouldn't call it. Uh, I wouldn't say it was his reintroduction into martial arts films because he did still do a couple of action ish films. But like you say, his whole body of work had shifted into more dramatic or comedic roles, and quite a lot of them hadn't resonated with audiences. But then, give it six to eight months later, and John Wick comes out, and those same people that said he was, uh, you know, gone and done, had to eat their words and and proclaim that he is uh he's been ignored by hollywood for far too long and how dare they forget how great he was and i find that fascinating because we're kind of seeing it happen again with everything everywhere all at once with uh, michelle yo and kihu kwan and literally the same thing is happening again at the same time with brendan fraser it's like eventually mm -hmm. someone's gonna have this idea that maybe just because people don't make blockbuster hits for a few years doesn't mean that they're done Maybe they just want to yeah. do other stuff or they want to take a break or they've had health issues. You know, it's it's this whole idea that unless you're relevant now, then, well, who are you then? You know, I, I really hate that. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm going to add Man of Tai Chi to my letterbox watch list. I've literally never heard of that movie and I'm looking it up now and it sounds really cool. <laughs> I, I don't want to say anything for fear of like, spoiling or, or ruining your first experience i would say just go in with lower expectations and you'll have a good time mm -hmm. i think it's a great film it has a great cast everybody in it gives their all and there's there's a lot of people that get to show off in that film that i don't think would have been given the opportunity were it not for keanu in the director's chair like i think it's a great example that keanu could do his own films personally i think he, he does a fantastic job i just feel like it um it has a couple of stumbling points, which is to be expected when it's his first time as a director and Tiger uh, Chen, I'm pretty confident, but I will just double check before someone corrects me that that was not his first film, but it is, yeah, it was like the first film he'd done next to Kung Fu Man where he was the lead. Um, and again, he was more known as a stunt double for Jet Li, like he was Jet Li's double for many, many years. And he has gone on and done a few other things. I don't know if you've seen Triple Threat, because if not, add that one to your letterboxed. Um, as that one stars God knows how many um, martial arts stars. But either way, I'm getting off topic and distracting myself. But this is this is what kind of what happens on this show. <laughs> no, I did, I did, I did add that one to my watch list yesterday. Because again, one thing I've discovered with this new corner of Twitter is everyone really likes Scott Scott Atkins, who is a complete blind spot for me. But blind spot for me. Sorry, I'm the but fluey still, which obviously means that I don't talk properly. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's that's that's in my watch list as of yesterday as well. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, I I am very jealous of you in some ways, and and not so much in others. Because on the one hand, it means you get to see so many good films for the first time, and you get to discover the majesty of Scott Adkins. And obviously, he is in John Wick Four, perhaps not in the way that some people wanted, but he is in it. Wait until the film comes out before everybody loses their minds is all I'm going to say on that. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, enjoy that journey is all I'm going to say. I mean, literally the next episode that's coming out after, uh, well, at the time of recording this one is on a Scott Adkins film. I will definitely bring you back if you want to discuss the, your journey with Scott Adkins, because that could be very interesting from a, someone who's never seen any of his films. That could be quite fun. But again, distracted. John Wick, Keanu Reeves. The one person that I haven't mentioned during all of this is, uh, and I'm I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce his name, which is why I've been dreading doing this, but it, it's the actor that played Vigo Tassarov. 
And I, I can definitely nail Michael, but I'm not sure if the next bit is Nickvist or or if the cue is silent and it's just like Nivist. But either way, he does a fantastic job playing the kind of the closest thing this film has to the villain, because although Alfie Allen's uh, Yosef Tassarov is the guy that does unfortunately, you know, fill the role very well, I will add, of the completely unlikable entitled asshole that basically causes all of these problems. He doesn't have the power or the the will or the resources to actually stand up to Wick. No, that is left to his father, Vigo. And Vigo is a weird character. I'm just going to say it. Like, he he kind of is a villain, but he's not. He's eccentric. He's kind of done with everything. He just wants an easy <laughs> existence. But underneath all of that, you can see how he ended up being the guy in charge. Because I love how underplayed he can be at times like when he punches his son so hard he vomits which i just i love that the secret vomit punch technique there is no defense but <laughs> when he loses it when he gets angry and his temper flares you can see the like badass godfather of this russian gang come back from this sort of civilized veneer he puts on and i think wants to just inhabit like he's done with being the hands-on criminal he just wants to sit back in his suits and get high but uh, it, because his son keeps fucking up, he can't. And I find that so funny. Yeah, that was one thing that I think, like, I always, I've always said that even though I very much enjoy this movie, I feel like the final act is a bit weird for me. And you use the word weird then to describe Vigo. And I'd have to agree because the version of Vigo that I find most compelling in this movie is the one we're introduced to. The one where he has a great reverence and respect for John. And uh, is there emphasizing the 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 magnitude of, of the fuck up that his son has made with the the secret uh, five finger vomit punch, um, and then the more that they get into the revenge pit, the more delirious and kind of kooky he gets, um, which kind of it works in the film's you know benefit, but also sometimes I'm kind of like I've I've completely lost where this the, the mindset of this character is. Um, like the bit at the end where, you know, it's the final showdown and he's jokingly, he's just gone from absolutely mercilessly beating the crap out of Willem Dafoe um, and, and really reveling in that, you know, and, and, and being the serious guy to being in, you know, his, his armored car driving away and his assailant kind of getting panicky and asking for a gun and him jokingly like going, oh, here's a gun. Oh, no, here's not your gun. Kind of that. That has always been like a weird kind of point of con not point of contention. It's one of those criticisms that I have that is difficult to articulate because I don't necessarily think that it might be a bad aspect of the movie because I think I know what they're going for here. They're trying to show that he is getting more unhinged in the wake of just the scale of John Wick's, you know, mission of revenge or whatever, um, and how powerless he is to stop it. But there's like there's badass Vigo. And then there's Goofy Vigo. And I feel like whenever he has the hat on, he's Goofy Vigo. Whenever he's not got the hat on, he's Stone Cold Killer Vigo. So I don't know how what your thoughts are on that performance, because it's always one that's kind of like been one of those where I'm like, I kind of wish he was a little bit more, played it a little bit more straight rather than kind of leading into the, the kookier kind of um, aspects of the performance. So I'm curious to hear what you think about that. Well... Before I actually give my personal thoughts, there is something that I want to sort of add to this that 
I have gone back and forth on on whether or not I think this is true, and I'm pretty certain that the filmmakers have very cleverly never like addressed this to to keep the fuel of fan conversation going. But I know that I remember I read somewhere that there's a large portion of people that think that Vigo used to be an assassin himself, because when he opens his safe to get the book that has John Wick's contact number, you see that he has a pile of gold coins the same way that John does, but they've clearly, you know, they, they look like they've been discarded and just abandoned, and he sort of looks at them like, oh yeah, and he, he doesn't really give a shit. And then he goes to the book, and the book clearly is covered in dust. And later in the film, he talks about the fact that they used to be colleagues and that they were both professionals, and how did it get to this? And a lot of people have interpreted that as that Vigo used to be like a Harry or a, a Marcus, in that that's how he knows all of these assassins, because maybe he was one, and then at some point decided that he... You know, he'd gotten tired of being the person dishing out the pain and he wanted to be the person giving the orders. Now, it doesn't matter, but I think that's an interesting take and it also has an impact on how you evaluate his performance. But also, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that's more a byproduct of the fact that they hadn't really hashed out how this world works yet. And as they establish in the film, everything in this underworld, because I don't think it's a world of assassins, I don't think everybody in that hotel as an assassin, because that's an insane number of assassins. That said, the next two films would demonstrate that everyone in the world is an assassin, apparently. <laughs> but at, if we just look at this film on its own, I always read it that it's the criminal underworld, and not even necessarily criminal, just people that have the resources and the wealth, frankly, to open doors for them. And, you know, the gold coin is sort of your resource that you can cash in that says, this is my access to it. So, of course, somebody that runs a criminal operation, and especially one as successful as Vigo's, would have a stash of his own gold coins because he uses these services himself. But I do like the idea that he was an assassin once because at the very end, he does demonstrate a very rusty version of what John Wick has been doing throughout the rest of the film. He clearly has at one point, been a very dangerous man, as he demonstrates by punching his son, the fact that he does punch people, and he gets annoyed at the fact that his hands hurt when he does. That's why he has to keep dipping him in ice, because it, it, the look he gives his hand is not one of, like, ow, oh, that hurt. It's more of a, ah, oh, yeah, I haven't done that for a while. I forgot. That hurts if you don't get calluses. And I, I feel like there's a lot of subtle bits to his performance that you can read in multiple ways. But, to answer your question, I agree that he is such a weird character, but I also think that that is because the true version of Vigo is the Stone Cold Killer, as you alluded to, when he's a badass at the very beginning, and he gives the best speech in, in all of these films where he's laying out the legend of John Wick, which is just a, such a perfect <laughs> delivery, and he gives, you know, that line that would pay dividends in later films that he once saw a man kill, you know, he once saw John Wick kill a man with, with a, a pencil. With a fucking pencil. Exactly. <laughs> He's the one that calls him the Baba Yaga, and he's the one that, you know, constantly shifts between speaking Russian and speaking English, and um, all of that works for me. But then when he tries to talk to, to John, he tries to talk to him like, you know, you're a killer, you get how this works, you understand the business, we're both civilized men, 
Let's try and talk about this. He even tries to say, you know, let us not resort to our baser instincts. And then John hangs up on him, which is, you know, all he really needs to say, which is nothing. But there's other points in the film, like you were saying, where he is a nasty person, like when they have John Wick captured and he no longer feels threatened. He's more than happy to go to town on John. But literally five minutes later, when it's reversed and John now has a shotgun to his face and he's like, cool it, cool it, cool it, cool it. And it's like, what <laughs> is going on there? And again, having rewatched this film a few times and especially last night, as the film goes on, I do feel like you're right in that he is unraveling and he is becoming unhinged, especially after John destroys his stash. Because I think that's the point where he just doesn't give a shit now. He's like, John has destroyed all of the dirt I had on people. He's taken away all the leverage I had on this city. Even if I kill John now, the organization is no longer as strong as it was. So I'm I'm screwed, basically. And after he then gives up his son's location, he's racked with guilt. He's racked with rage. He's racked with anger and helplessness, because as you said, he can't do anything. Which is ironic, because that's exactly what he told his son at the start of the film. But he tries anyway, knowing that in reality, it's probably not going to work. This is the boogeyman. Or, you know, the person you send to kill the fucking boogeyman. But <laughs> he then does something that I feel like people miss in that last bit, which is that he gets high. So for that entire last sequence, yeah. he, he's high. And I feel like that is part of the reason why he acts the way he does, because especially that one that you gave as an example where he does tease um, Dean Winters' Avi with the gun, which I find hysterical. And I, I genuinely feel that that's him going, right, you really want this gun so much. Here you go. Because it's like, you're going to die anyway. I know you're going to die. John knows you're going to die. You're the only person that thinks that you having a gun is going to make a difference. Go on then. <laughs> you go and do what a hundred plus armed guards with automatic rifles has failed to do for the last two days. You know, I feel like his character is uh, constantly balancing the knife edge between my son is the one that screwed up here. And if it was anybody else, I'd have just given him to John. But it's my son. He's my blood. I hate his guts sometimes, but I still love him. So I can't. So I've now got to fight John Wick. The problem is, I actually like John. John is a good guy, and he hasn't done anything wrong. We did. And I, I feel like that conflict isn't necessarily shown very well, but I think that's what they were trying to do is... He doesn't actually want to fight John. He doesn't actually want to kill John up until the very, very end. And even when he has that realization of, I actually do want to stand here and kill you, I think a part of him knows he doesn't have it in him. You know, he might have mm. once been able to be a threat to John, but they don't even try and make that last fight a physical match between two men. I've always read that last sequence as it's an emotional one. It's two people who don't actually want to kill each other. Because John could have killed Vigo at multiple points in the film, even when Vigo has left him for dead, and he still chooses not to. So there is clearly some kind of a relationship that those two are battling against to not want to kill each other. And then at the end, both of them go, fuck it. This is only going to end when one of us is dead and we both know it. So let's just, let's just do it now. Let's just get it over with. And um, the fact that it ends with the two of them just sitting down next to each other with a, uh, well, be seeing you, John. And 
it's that it's that quiet acceptance of we both knew this was how it was going to end but you knew i had to try right and john's just like yeah be seeing you and then he just gets up and leaves there's no that kill to me is so devoid and disconnected from the rest of all of his kills yes he's pissed at him for killing marcus but i think there's a part of john that is like well what did i think was going to happen you know how could i have not seen that there was going to be an angry retaliation from the dad when i just killed his son bearing in mind i'm doing all of this because his son killed my dog you know it's 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 what you said at the beginning where revenge just comes back around onto oneself and i i think that that they don't necessarily hit that but that's what i think they were going for that's how i read it anyway if that answers your question yeah, no, that totally did. That that's kind of what I'm thinking. I think honestly, it might just be like a preference thing. I think he, I think I just prefer him being all sorts of intimid, like leading into that intimidation factor. But yeah, the the point where he does blaze up, I'd forgotten about that um, in my watch before the most recent one. Um, and yeah, it does it does lead to a bit of a shift in him. It's just weird. I, I definitely I definitely enjoyed the performance. It's just the occasional moment like that, kind of like um, when John has him by a shotgun and he's like, cool it, cool it, cool it, like that. That is the one bit where I'm just like, what is going on there? I don't get that. Um, but apart from that, I do think there is there is definitely a, a great deal of nuance um, to their relationship. And I very much enjoy that. And the other thing that I find quite interesting about it is that both John and Vigo, they don't, they don't hold Vigo accountable for his son's actions, which is weird because, you know, Alfie Allen's character, that is Vigo's son. You know, like he, it's not as if like, he could have reined him in, you know. He's perfectly fine for him to go about and and steal someone's car and kill their dog. It's just the only reason why it's bad is because it's it's John. So even though John doesn't want to, you know, take revenge against Vigo himself, it's kind of meeting out the completion of justice that he ends up doing that, even though reluctantly, because it's like, well, we're all accountable, you know. He's he's his son's been like this for so long <laughs> you know what i mean and he might be you know there's only so much influence you can have over a child but it's like you know he's been in your life for how long and you've let him you've been quite content with him doing this and now just because he's having to piss off john wick is it an issue um which i find interesting as well like there's, there's an element of like um vigo feels obligated to defend his son but never kind of reckons with the fact that like oh shit this is kind of this is my mistake as well so even though john is like going after Vigo's like um supply lines and businesses like it still feels like a an emotional element to it as well like you know it, it's still intricately connected in a way yes i mean that in my you've you've just basically summed up the conversation that they have when they capture john briefly yeah. and you know he tells them flat out that this is all because of the shit that we did back in the day this life follows you we're both cursed and john even says like we agree and uh you know it doesn't change anything but i think they both understand that this is the life that they've both led for one reason or another obviously this would be expanded upon for john in in the later films but neither one of them are good people no one in this film is a good person they're all criminals they're all killers even even people like Winston, as would be shown but quite clearly in later films, is not free from sin. Everybody involved is monstrous. The only reason why they appear like they're not is because they follow the rules. 
and the one person that doesn't follow the rules, Perkins, is unceremoniously blown apart by four assassins for daring to break rules. That's the only thing that gets a response from the rest of this organization is, oh, no, 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 no. We can tolerate all of this other crap that happens. We don't care about violence and death and killings, but you broke a rule. Now we're going to get involved. And I think that sends a, a very clear message of the type of people that this film is dealing with. Like, there's no innocent people involved in this, you know? Yeah, totally. I, I totally agree. And except the cleaners, they're okay. <laughs> I've got to defend the cleaners, man. <laughs> they're just doing their jobs. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. But at the end of the day, they are the reason why chances are these people just end up missing rather than declared dead and no one ever knows what happens to them. So I'm not convinced that the families of those people would agree with you. I, these are fictional people, obviously, but it. Uh, I'm not sure the cleaners are free of sin either. <laughs> well, no, but they've even got their own, like, uh, ironically titled van as, like, waste disposal management which is just great you can't say that without putting on the new york accent <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so... I love that so much i mean that's what i mean there's so much about this world to like like everything everything feels like it's draped in sarcasm and cynicism and i love it and again i feel like for some people they think that is lost as the films go on i don't think it is i still think that they managed to do it but i don't think that i think this film has the most of it simply because there are more characters for John to interact with, and they have more breaks in between the action. Which, speaking of, we should actually probably talk about the action. <laughs> that would be good, because this is this is the Action Addicts po podcast, right? <laughs> yes, but you'd be surprised how often I don't talk about the action, because nine times out of ten, yeah, of course it's a good action. It's on this podcast. I wouldn't be talking about <laughs> a film that doesn't have action in it, but, you know, the interesting stuff is always going to be about the characters. There's an episode that hasn't come out yet, where someone has, you know, perfectly summed up my own thoughts, which is that action should not be viewed from the point of view of, well, it's somebody that can throw roundhouse kicks versus somebody that can throw really good punches. It's non-verbal dialogue. All of the best action scenes are self-contained stories that have no dialogue. You could watch it free from whatever the rest of the film's context is, and you should still be understand, roughly, why and what is happening. And I feel like John Wick perfectly does that. That first sequence when he's suited up and the people assault his house, the way he appears out of the shadows, it sets up a style that these films are still trying to adhere to, as you just said, nearly a decade later, where he pulls the trigger, it blows apart their head, they die. Which is something that so many action films have a problem with. It's painful how no matter what you do to a thug in a film, they'll get back up in a couple seconds and try again. That doesn't happen in a John Wick film. If he hits you, it hurts. If he shoots you, you're either dead or the second shot will kill you because he's just putting you in a better position. And I feel like that resonated so much with people that I can't quite convey it unless you were there because it was something different. It was the same as going back to 80s Hong Kong and seeing every shot is basically a widescreen camera that actually allows you to see what's happening without cuts, without close-ups because they want to show you what performers could do and you kind of get an evolution of that here 
where you know Keanu's got his judo mixed with Krav, mixed with MMA, and his tactical work and his CQC work, that it blends together so well that they don't need to cut it up into pieces because they drilled him for months to make sure that he knew what he was doing. It's the marriage of the kind of ballet-like, stylistic, you know, stuff we would come to associate with with Wu, you know, in, in his Hong Kong efforts. And then when, when of course, we moved to America as well. Um, but with the rigor, the rigorous, merciless efficiency of tactical, like, you know, close quarters combat, um, that's what always makes John Wick stand out to me, is that it's a case of, like, a lot of action movies, there is, you know, the... the they have good tactical work or they have really good kind of stylistic, you know, um, like a, a kind of like a gun ballet where it might not make the most practical sense, but it looks cool. So we're going to do it. Whereas with John Wick, I feel like it's the perfect fusion. You know, it's, it's just great seeing the, um, the, the posture change. Um, there's a great moment in the red circle scene where he's on the second level after breaking through the nightclub and he's facing off against the head of security um, and he's trying to get a bead on on uh, Alfie Allen's character again. I forget what the son's name is called. Um, he's trying to get a Yusuf. Yeah, he's trying to get a bead on him, and he goes from keeping the kind of his his handgun in that kind of close upright position, which makes it easier to you know pull shots off, and you know makes it more difficult for your opponent to disarm you. To then switching to that kind of outright arms extended position to precision aim across the hallway. Um, and that I don't know why that particular moment always stands out to me because they found a way to make the tactical stuff just you know efficiently integrate it into the kind of the, the stylistic ballet slash dance slash whatever you want to call it of um, the film's action sequences. It's immaculately handled, you know, handling like he's going from like double taps to like um, you know like judo throws to um, whatever, and it's always. It, it's it's always the practical move for him to do um but like it's also the coolest thing um and i just find it like it, it it's really well handled and some seriously brutal moments in here obviously the the series would get more violent as we got into you know chapter three with like the the the, the eye and the knife and the the book kind of in the jugular and stuff like this but there's this one bit where he he yanks that dude with the beard's head down onto the table and just mercilessly double taps him right in the head. And um, it's just, it, it, there's that kind of, that merciless approach where it's so sudden um, and efficient that I really, really like about it. Like it's, you, you get the sense that this is a guy at the peak of his powers. And I just, yeah, it, it's really something that, that stood out to me again, watching it, but I've always kind of really enjoyed about it is that it's so, they, they did their homework. <laughs> yes. And I, I think, Part of the reason why it works is because everybody involved is a master of their craft. You know, the stunt coordinators, the directors, they know action. Uh, the choreography was, again, uh, apologies, I'm probably going to get this pronunciation wrong, was done by Jonathan Uzibio. And I know I've got that wrong, so sorry. But um, it's one of those things where everything comes together and it works, but they also make sure that you don't get bored which is something that some films struggle with. So what I mean by that is all of these action sequences, if you were to just look at them from a choreography point of view, there's some similarities and some crossover, but none of the action sequences are the same. They always try to set them in a different location so that visually 
the aesthetic has changed, so it's pleasing for the eyes. But as you just said, you get moments where he double taps perfectly. He moves with breathtaking speed and he snaps to his target straight away, but then he'll run out of bullets. So he has to do a quick bit of CQC whilst reloading. I was just about to mention the reload bit is yep. so cool, where he's stunned the guy and he's kept him there wobbling and he has to do the quick reload. That's, that's perfection. <laughs> but also, um, you were saying about how it gets more vicious later, which it definitely does in some aspects, but I also feel like they do a really clever thing right off the bat when he goes to the hotel because... First off, he goes after Victor, and he takes out those guards really easily. But it's just after the bit with Francis that he doesn't kill, that he tells him, why don't you take the night off instead? And I love that because it shows that although he's going to mercilessly kill anyone who does get in his way, his goal is not to just rack up a body count. Because if that was the case, he could have easily killed Yosef in that nightclub without any difficulty but he would have also killed other people that didn't deserve it, you know, the people in the nightclub. Yeah. But the guards that have put themselves between him and Yosef, he has no sympathy for whatsoever. And there's one kill that he does in the nightclub that always sticks with me, and it is one of his stealth kills before he's revealed. He grabs uh, the bold guy, and he puts a knife in his throat after a little bit of resistance from the guard. Yeah. But as he kills him, he stares into his eyes and goes down with him, literally watching the life go out of the other guy's eyes. And the rage that Keanu manages to put into that kill, because it's like, you got in between me and the person that causes me this much pain. You're going to feel all of this and he almost is like enjoying it but not in a sadistic way it's a uh, you're dead you Goodbye. know what you did you yeah know what you did kind exactly of yeah. and the fact that um they they do it's not that so much that they do a clever thing because other films have done this but the fact that they show you how unstoppable of a force of nature he is throughout that entire sequence and then as you say they introduce the head of security daniel bernhardt's character he is almost the opposite of John because all of his movements, partly because Daniel Bernhardt is in fantastic shape, a fantastic martial artist, he almost can match John in a different set of skills. And he does kind of do more kicks, more big movements, but also he's the only character in the whole film that genuinely beats him twice because the first time he throws him off the top of the balcony and then John realizes that maybe I don't want to try that again so i'm gonna leave and go through the other guards instead and it hurts him and he has to recover but also the second time they fight bernhardt's character makes the correct decision that trying to run straight at someone with a automatic <laughs> rifle is not the best tactical decision so he gets in a car and hits him with a car and it's like i love the fact that they gave at least one member of the tasarov brigade whatever they were called uh, some brain power because although he is a physical threat he beats john multiple times by not trying to be better than him in a fight he throws him off a balcony he stabs him in the stomach he hits him with a car and then in the in his last fight with john he's trying to strangle him with the bag and obviously john manages to get him strangled instead and similar thing you've caused me the most problems so it's the slowest death in the film comparison to when he does finally catch up with Yosef, 
and there's almost no emotion left in him. He just walks up to him. Couldn't... Such a good point. It's almost like he's exhausted all of his rage and he's nothing to him anymore. Yeah, it's like it's it's almost performative at that point. He needs to die, so he will die. But he just walks right up to him, pulls the trigger, turns around and walks away. Don't get me wrong. He perfectly set all that up because, you know, he had to plant all the explosives without being seen. He took out the sniper, took his position, learned the patrol patterns of all of the guards, feeling like something out of a Hitman game at that point, which I like. And then, <laughs> you know, takes them all out with the sniper and knows exactly what the escape route is going to be taken to head off Yosef. But like you say, there's just nothing left at that point emotionally. His uh, outlet has already kind of run itself dry because it's like, well, he's the last one. It needs to happen, but he doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't torture him. He doesn't make it slow. He just gives him a quick death, which is actually something that Vigo brings up when they talk on the phone and says, thank you for giving my son a quick death. Silence. And then, yeah, I'm not sure I'd know how to respond to that either. And I love those sorts of interactions because it's only in this universe that you could get something like that. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And it's it's also great because there is that aspect of like he's exhausted his emotion at that point. But it's also like a kind of contemptuous response as well because he's just there. Like the, the kid still doesn't get it. At the end of the day, he still doesn't understand. He, he tries to chat back to him with it was just the fucking dog. And he's just like, I don't even want to hear you finish that sentence. You know, you don't you'll never understand this because you're just a child. Just an emotionally immature man um, who's caused more pain than he'll ever realize. So I kind of like that. And in a sense, that the quick death there—it's to not to not to try and teach him because he's incapable of being teached. You know, otherwise Vigo would have taught him long ago. So it's more just a kind of blunt, you know, piece of punctuation to kind of conclude the journey. It's like, well, I, I don't want to even hear you. I don't want to even hear you. So there you go, blam. <laughs> you know, which I also kind of like looking at it from that angle too. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the other, it's not so much as a standout sequence, but I do just kind of want to mention it because, you know, all throughout the film, John can take most people out in one, two, three, dead, basically a rhythm or, or one dead, two dead, three, one, two, three dead. But Perkins is kind of the only other character that is actually a physical challenge. But one complaint that I often hear on the internet is about whether or not a physical uh, match is even possible between a smaller opponent, a larger opponent, someone that weighs less, someone that weighs more. It's kind of irrelevant, in my opinion, when you're talking about the entertainment medium. But what I do like with the fight that Perkins has with Wick is that she doesn't actually give anybody the chance to have that argument because all of her attacks to John, barring a couple of punches when she first gets in the room, is grappling. And... Mm -hmm. Anyone that's actually done Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or ever done mixed martial arts will tell you when you're in that sort of close proximity, being the bigger, heavier person is not an advantage. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the, that's the one thing that I always enjoy about like martial arts aspects and movies because I did a little bit when I was younger. It's always about using your opponent's strengths against you. Um, sorry, against them, which is you know, their own weight, their own momentum or whatever. And she does that really well in that scene. I, I it's a very well choreographed moment. And it's also quite a funny scene as well. The kind of idea of it being like a late night booty call turned into an assassination attempt, um, which I find really entertaining. Yeah, And of course, she also, as soon as she clocks in on the stitches, she's hammering that area right away. There's a ruthlessness and precision there that isn't glamorous, you know, and 
even though there's an element like obviously the choreography in this movie is incredible it's so immaculately well done it, it goes back to that tactical precision that kind of laser-edged focus where it, it's it's how do i dispose of this person as quickly as possible you know there is style there is flair but it's almost incidental and everyone who has that kind of moment in in, in this film they, they do it really well yes and and you go from that to and again, going back to why I think some people prefer this film is everything in this film happens for a reason. It's all very clean. It's efficient. You know, the fight with her, aside from giving us a different type of fight, aside from showing us that Marcus still hasn't decided if he's going to kill Wick or help him, because otherwise she could have just walked into that room and put a bullet through his head. He's the reason that John has time to respond to her. But she's also the one that gives him the location of the church which leads into the quick but enjoyable sequence where he raids the church, but more importantly, it's a trap for Vigo. And that whole scene, up until Daniel Bernhardt hits him with a car, is filmed like it's a war. You know, there's no music, there's no ambient noise, it's just the sound of this gun echoing as he just mercilessly takes people out. He comes out of the shadows, and compared to the stylish sequence that we had in the nightclub, it is a completely different feel. He's just basically declaring war on Vigo at that point. He is just mercilessly killing everyone. And he would have had not Daniel Bernhardt thought to hit him with a car. But the way that whole sequence is shot is totally different to the action scenes that we had in the nightclub, in the house, in the hotel. It's big, it's open, the camera frames everybody as far away, it doesn't zoom in and keep everything close. It shows you how much space there is, and more importantly how empty that space is. He's picked the exact best ground because there's no cover for anybody to uh, get behind. It's not Gears of War. There isn't, you know, half high cover for them to all magnetize to. It's brilliant. It reminds me a lot of Heat, that scene, particularly with the choice of lens as well. Like it's very yes. gray and washed out. Um, and Keanu's work in that scene, it feels like it was delivered by Mick Gold. Like it's like, uh, come back to that and um, Val Kilmer, when he's doing all his reloads and there's like, you know, the tactical work in Heat is exceptional. Um, but it's really good here as well. I think there's some weird static movements from the the opposing enemy um, in that bit. But yeah, I totally agree. It's not really something that I thought about, but the we go from that kind of like, if you want to look at John Wick as almost like a Greek mythological descent into hell, which, you know, I think is is quite deliberate at times. You know, we have Jaron as the... Um, as the hotel manager, as the the consigliere, the concierge, not concierge, concierge, a completely different thing, and he gets given gold pieces, and he almost ferries John Wick back into the underworld, as it were, um, and that kind of coming out the other end of the red circle, that kind of lack of color and vibrancy, um, almost makes it feel as if he stepped back into a different world, like he stepped, like the if the red circle is like the the river sticks, then everything after that is like the different circles of hell. Um, and you could apply that even more so to the other films, even though, of course, they do change. You know, they're obviously very, very vibrant. But I quite like that idea of you get you exit one kind of like <laughs> one area and he comes out into this other like zombie like state. And he's just mad. I love the way they shoot New York in this as well. Like there's some great panoramic shots um, and like the um, the idea of like light as a warmth a warm source as well like we get the whole stuff a lot of the flashbacks with helen you have that one where they're walking along the um the the hudson banks and then you have um 
that echoed again at the end when he's walking away with his new dog and you know it's i like i like the the different stylistic flourishes we get here in terms of using light you know light is used very efficiently here and there's a reason why you know after John Wick came out, we had loads of films aping the quote-unquote bisexual lighting um, and like the different kind of aspects there. Um, it's just immaculately shot. And even in that scene where he's coming out to ambush, um, and uh, ambush Vigo, it's still like it's still great. Like it's still very murky, and 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 you're right. Like it feels like it's out from a war zone. You've also just uh, accidentally set up something I was going to say. And, <laughs> and, and the fact that you've, you've said something similar now, now makes me think that it is almost a deliberate choice. But you said that this film could almost be seen from a thematic point of view as descending into hell, or, or specifically Hades with the Greek mythology. And I would remind you that this film starts with John Wick falling over and essentially dying. And Oh, shit. And <laughs> if, you, if you wanted to, you could argue that he never gets back up because he definitely sustains a big injury that causes him a lot of blood loss. And they do kind of go the extra mile with this film to show you that they, they take these injuries seriously. He needs to be stitched up by a doctor. He has to take pills before he does stuff. He has to constantly stitch himself or staple himself back together. But you could make the argument that everything after this is not real. And that that is why John Wick Chapter 2 and Chapter 3 go nuts. Because everything is actually mythological and is just giving you a deeper look and understanding of his descent into madness and hell. And that he is essentially unable to find peace within himself because he's in hell. And everything you just said, you could apply to all of these films... And not to jump ahead, but John Wick Chapter 4, one of the big themes is if you do this trial, you could be free of this place. Well, what place? Where are we? Where, where, where did that come from? That's an interesting thing to say. Just make me want to play Hades again now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, though. You, you, you could definitely give all of the recurring characters throughout the franchise some kind of comparison to the various different mythological takes of hell or the different realms of hell but the fact that as you say they use gold coins specifically definitely gives you that greek touch and if you wanted to make a tragedy greeks would definitely be the inspiration that i would go through because they were kind of known for them just to make this even better, uh, the club is called the Red Circle, and you have different circles of hell, obviously, and he obviously ascends through them exactly. in that moment. Exactly. Um, see, see, from the yeah. minute you started talking and saved me having to say some of that, I'm now more convinced than ever that even if it's not their intention to take that literally, I genuinely think that that is by design. I think somebody making this has deliberately put all these elements in, and that is clearly what they were going for, even if it's only a uh, passing similarity and it's not supposed to be taken literally that he's actually, you know, going down the River Styx and he's actually in Hades and, you know, um, all of the various opponents are different stages that he has to overcome. And I'd be very curious if he's going to ever come across a Cerberus. But my my point is, is that clearly the people making this know their mythologies really well. And I don't think that those uh, similarities are consequential. 
Yeah, I'd love to um I'd love to read some deep dives into this because it's got my brain <laughs> fully going. Because I have to be brutally honest, I never really picked up on the Greek stuff when I was watching it like years ago, but watching it yesterday, I was like, oh wait a second. Um completely forgotten his name. And I was like, oh wow, that is that's literally the boatman. And he's a guy who takes you down your soul down the rip sticks. And it works really well like that. I love it when we get remixes of mythology. <laughs> well, the thing is as well, is again when viewed through that lens you could easily start to see chapter two and chapter three and the way that they ramp everything up and the extra um, mythology that they put on the world of assassins that some people dislike and um if you view it from that point of view there's a lot of um there's a word and and my brain is doing that really unhelpful thing of knowing it exists but will not bring it to Mm -hmm. mind but the similarities just get bigger and bigger you you can see that they bring in other aspects of this purgatory that john wick is stuck in because they literally put the whole world against him and the fact that they you know winston has literally played some of these mythological characters in other films ian mcshane (laughs) and you know he is such a good stand-in for hades himself because one minute he's john's friend but then you're never really sure if he's his friend. And then obviously, not to give spoilers for a film we're not talking about, but in Job Chapter 3, there's a big question mark on, did, did Winston betray him? And it, it's a really interesting thing, like you say. I, I'm sure somebody out there much smarter than us has already done a deep dive into this, because there's no way that we're the first people to notice it. Oh, no. Hell no. <laughs> but um, it is something interesting to talk about, and... If people listening to this are wondering what the hell we're going on about, then welcome to Discussing Film. <laughs> <laughs> but I have uh, we have been going for a while now, and uh, I don't necessarily have much more to say about John Wick. Is there anything that you would like to add that we haven't touched on? Because uh, there is one more thing that I will just briefly say, but I don't think it requires a, another 20 minutes of conversation. <laughs> No, nah, not really. Just um, banger of an action movie. Um, soundtrack's immense. I'm probably going to go and listen to it while I make my lunch <laughs> once we wrap up. Um, and just, yeah, I love Keanu Reeves. Uh, I think it's just, I, I love this franchise and I, I'm looking forward to seeing it progress. Um, I'm very much excited for John Wick Chapter 4. Um, and like, again, like even though I think this is the um, my least favorite of the trilogy so far, um, or the series so far, I should say, it's still like excellent and it lays down the foundations for everything that I love about the sequels. Um, yeah, no, I just, I've just a great film and thank you for having me on and talk about it. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's, that's no worries. I was quite happy to have you on. And obviously we, we definitely have uh, plans because there's, there's so many good films to talk about. And the fact that you have such a wide range of interests and specialities. And I mean, you know, I think of everybody I've ever spoken to, you are genuinely the first person to ever suggest Westerns, um, which is a good thing because I still count them. That, that, that I was always going to do a couple of Westerns, but uh, I'm not the most knowledgeable about the genre. And I know for a fact you are. So that's kind of a no brainer. So <laughs> this is not the last <laughs> time you will hear you and Patterson on this show. But there is one other aspect that I keep I I kept thinking, right, I'm gonna say that in a minute, and then we moved on. So I'm just gonna say this before we end, which is that one thing that I feel like this film does really, really well 
and I think the other two do as well, but I, I think it's much more pronounced here is the comedy. And whether or not you can say that a film that's all about killing people for vengeance has comedy is subjective, but I 100% that this film is funny. And there are so many great one-liners and exchanges. And I mean, Lance Reddick's character, his whole, you know, his everything he says in this first film is basically to make the audience chuckle and to give you that brief relief from all of the insane amounts of kills and action and just rage. And then you cut to a different character and you're like, <laughs> or John will say something between him and Vigo, like you were saying about the sequence where um, John has him to a shotgun and he's like, they know you're coming. Of course, but it won't matter. And again, it's not supposed to be funny, but it is funny because it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter if they know he's coming. And, you know, when he walks back into the hotel and he asks, um, I've forgotten his, the character's name because for so, annoyingly, I've only got a hotel manager as the credit in front of me. But Lance Reddick, who I think it's Charon, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when he goes in and says to Charon, by the way, you know, I need to see the doctor, but also how good is your laundry service? And he just sort of looks him up and down and he's like, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but no one's that good. And that every time his delivery of that is so perfect. He is just, he is almost the comedy relief of this film, but at the same time, you just know, and later it was proved in other films, but you just know if anything was to kick off, he would sort it out without any need of anyone's help. He's the ultimate classy presence in this movie and the series as a whole. He's the, the classy glue that holds everything together. And I do love that. I love the idea of this hotel for assassins and, and the, the criminal underworld that they're in. Um, and the, you know, the juxtaposition between being like, oh, we've had complaints of a, you know, a noise complaint and no business on this hotel. It's only pleasure and stuff like that. It's just, it's so, I, I, I live for shit like that. And um, Lance Reddick is, excellent in this and i was very happy to see him kick some ass in, in chapter three <laughs> yes but with that said as we've we've already said goodbye and thank you to Hewitt, and then i added a bit on at the end because i just really wanted to say that um that's kind of going to be it for this so thank you once again for coming on and for taking the time i know my episodes do run slightly longer than yours so sometimes it is a, a bit more bit of a commitment coming on but i hope the time has flown away and you've not even noticed <laughs> it's been a pleasure thank you all right and with that i will hand you over to the me of the future to let you know what's happening next or if there's anything to add all right i'm gonna cut myself off there because everything that i said after that fact is irrelevant outdated and i kind of said what i needed to say in the intro like stuff so you'll have to excuse me i've also managed to get myself a sore throat whilst i decided to record this intro yesterday i was fine i wish i'd done it then so that was episode 50. I hope you enjoyed it. I really enjoyed talking to Hewan about it and I'm looking forward to carrying on with good times. We have two more episodes that were recorded uh, during this period that are going to come out. The next episode will actually be a pretty cool one. It will be about a Korean film that I don't think that many people have heard of. That film is called Exit. It was a really fun first time watch for me and it was recommended by next week's guest who is an author and his name is Ryan Estrada. So you'll have to tune in next week if you want to find out more about that film and more about that particular guest. But trust me, it's a really, really fun episode and it's a really fun film. 
So I think you guys are going to enjoy it. And uh, after that, we've got returning guest Andy Gorham to talk about Accident Man 2 Hitman's Holiday, which sadly is going to have a bit of a weird tone to it because it was obviously recorded before the passing of Ray Stevenson. And again, I would have done a little thing for him, but I wasn't in a position to do so. So RIP Ray, when we actually do that episode, I'll do a little bit for him in the intro probably, but... Man, that just kind of came out of nowhere. A, a really bad time for me as well, so it was like, oh, I really felt that. Anyway, that's it for this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're looking forward to the next one, which, fingers crossed, it will be smooth sailing again from here, and I'm looking forward to getting back to chatting to people about action films. I've got a couple of really exciting people lined up. I've also got a couple of in-conversation-with episodes that are currently trying to get their recording dates nailed down, but both people I think are cool. One is somebody that is very well known in the action space, and one is someone that should be but isn't. It's uh, another stunt guy, but it's not someone that I really hear anybody talk to, and I'm actually kind of excited to get his story, so look out for that one when it comes out. Give it a go, give it a go. Anyway, that's it for me for today, guys. Stay safe, take care of yourselves, and I shall see you in the next one. On the action.